as we launch into this morning's message, I want to introduce uh, Mark Ritchie. Mark, come up here and join me, if you will, please. Uh, Mark is Lakewood's newest elder, and um, uh, many of you know Mark, who is one of the prime leaders at Timber Bay, helping teenagers find Christ and, and develop an intense, beautiful relationship with the Lord. Uh, but I got some questions for you, Mark. Mark, when did you come to faith in Christ? So it was a Sunday in July before my ninth grade. And yes, and, bef and so what happened, I was at church with my grandparents. And um, I heard these guys with long hair and hippie type guys come to Christ, make their decision to follow Jesus, and I could really relate to these guys. I mean, they had drugs and alcohol. I didn't do the drugs and alcohol, but they had long hair. I had long hair. Uh, and so that was kind of the occasion of how I made a decision to follow Jesus. I understood that he died for my sin. That's sweet. Tell us about uh, your early days with Jesus. What was that like? Well, you guys remember this. When you first come to Christ, uh, there's this tremendous sense of relief and no more guilt and realizing that Jesus took this sin, burden, and debt off my shoulders. It was huge. It was mind-blowing, really. And to just live in that joy and that relief was incredible. Yeah, that's great. Great story. And Mark, what are some of the important elements uh, today for you to keep your love relationship with Christ alive and growing? You know, that's a really good question, and it might be different for all of us, but you know what? Uh, let's be honest here. I think I've certainly lost my first love, as we are going to talk about this this morning, uh, in my faith journey. And, you know, I, I think everyone of us here has, to some degree, lost that. And, and I think part of it for me is really understanding a couple things. One is we can't forget that Jesus erased this sin debt, this love, this grace, this mercy. If we lose track of that, then secondly, if I get kind of carried along with the culture and, and just start you know, living self-gratifying ways, I think that gets us on a road of losing that first love. And so I want to be really careful about uh, making sure that I'm current with Jesus. Let, you know, let's be honest. Let's be authentic. I want to be authentic. I want to be vulnerable. I want to be honest about the sin in my life. And we need to confess this to one another and to Jesus. And like what James says in his epistle, he says, if you confess your faults one to another, what? You will be healed. And I think that, for me, helps me stay current with Christ. That's great. Tell me a little bit about your work at Timber Bay and your work with teens. Sure. So um, it, it's, it's a real privilege. You know, um, uh, you know it doesn't... A youth doesn't have to act out negatively to, to, you know, kind of be a part of Timber Bay. Timber Bay is creatively sowing seeds of grace and love to Jesus, uh, for Jesus, to, to youth, to all youth, any youth. 
uh, it's just that we're trying to reach out those who don't have as many assets in their life. And so we're creatively doing that, sowing the seeds of the gospel to kids through mentoring relationships with at-risk kids. Uh, I was an at-risk kid. I didn't act out in terms of drugs and alcohol, but you know what? I was lost. I was lonely. My dad, uh, I was five when my d angry alcoholic dad leaves. And, oh my gosh, I turned in myself. That's how I responded to that. And, and so Timber Bay is looking for those kind of kids. And they may not have a church background, uh, but, that, but that's who Timber Bay is. And you know what? I'm really privileged to be a part of it. And obviously thank uh, uh, folks here at, at Lakewood for supporting me in that. Mark, thanks for being willing to serve uh, the in the leadership of our church. And uh, I want to ask you if you would uh, read the scripture for us this morning and then pray for us before we uh, study God's word. Yeah, I've got it right here. Thanks. So reading from Revelations 2, starting in verse 1, to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the presence of God. So would you bow with me and then we'll pray. Heavenly Father, help me, help all of us not to forget that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but rather love us forgive us, care for us, provide for us, grow us, and in your unbounded wisdom, invite us to join you in your work in this world by your Holy Spirit residing in us. Lord, where would we be if you did not intervene in our lives? We confess that we often don't listen, we don't pay attention to you or the needs of others. We forget you have plucked us out of the miry clay and set our feet on your loving and firm foundation. We're grateful, and we desire not to lose our first love. Now grant Pastor Steve your words this morning and give us ears to hear and apply your truth and grace. In the name of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Well, if you were with us last Sunday, you know we uh, started a series of messages in the first three chapters of Revelation. We read about John the Apostle imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. He had a vision uh, from the Holy Spirit. 
And in that vision, John sees Jesus in his exalted, eternal, glorified body walking among seven candle stands representing the seven nearby churches. And this picture is awe-inspiring. Jesus' majesty, his glory, his power, it so amazed John that it knocked him off his feet. He fainted away like one dead. And the exalted Savior is going to evaluate each of those seven churches represented by those seven golden lampstands. And you remember we said it's easy for us to have opinions about churches. Even our church, we have opinions. But it's not our opinion that really counts. It's Jesus' evaluation that matters. I hope you heard that message, or at least that you'll go to the website and listen to the recording. It's a very important start to a very crucial series of messages for us. We noticed last Sunday how Jesus so deeply loves and cares for churches, congregations. We notice that believers today often get cynical and critical of local congregations and that because of our cultural tendencies, we focus more on Jesus' relationship with individual believers or or we focus on the other extreme. We'd rather think about Jesus' relationship to the church universal and because congregational life is sometimes messy and difficult, a lot of believers have simply... Uh, disconnected from the local church and said, I'm a believer, that's what matters. I'm part of the universal body of Christ, that's what matters, that's all that counts, and so I'm disconnecting from the local church. That's tempting at times, isn't it? Local churches are sometimes messy and difficult, but let me tell you something. When you deal with the relational commands for believers in the scripture, the one another's, serve one another, love one another, forgive one another, be kind to one another, comfort one another, stimulate one another. There are about 60 of those in Scripture. But let me tell you, you can only live those out in a local congregation and in a church fellowship. And our picture in Revelation 1, Jesus walks among the lampstands. These are local congregations. He is going to evaluate and have a message for each of those local churches. Jesus does care for each believer. And Christians together, regardless of time and space and denomination, do make up this universal sense of the church as the body of Christ. But notice here, Jesus is not focused on individuals, and he's not focused on the universal. He's focused on congregations. And listen, there is a sense in which we at Lakewood stand before the Lord as a community of believers to receive his evaluation. There is this important sense of us, a set of characteristics of us together, and the Lord evaluates us. Sometimes I hear at Lakewood, if we have a problem, oh, that's them, not me. I'm okay, it's them over there. 
And Jesus would say to us, you're too narrow taking responsibility only for me. You are part of an us. And in this evaluation, this revelation evaluation, Jesus would say, I'm dealing with you as a you all. And you need to take responsibility, not just for yourself here, but also as an us for your part in the us. So we start today looking at how Jesus evaluates the church at Ephesus, that congregation, that community of believers. And we're going to see, as we take these churches one at a time, we're going to see a similar pattern in each of these letters across these weeks. It's almost a template. There are these sections in each of the seven letters. First, credentials and salutation. The specific church is addressed by the awesome Lord, addressed by name. Second, commendations. As a church, you're good at this, Jesus is going to say. Jesus congratulates them on their strengths. And then, critical challenges. Here's the struggle you face, or the struggle that's just around the corner in your future. Then there's a section that we will call constructive criticism. Here's what you need to do. And then finally to each, a conditional promise. Here's the blessing if you will hear me and follow me. And here's what will happen if you refuse to do what I ask. Now, here's what I want to say to you. Jesus so loves his churches. There are some hard words in these letters. There are times, aren't there, when facing the truth is a painful exercise. But Jesus has no interest to put them down. He has no desire to cast them aside. He loves these churches so much that he can't avoid saying the hard things and calling them away from the things that are damaging and evil in their fellowship, calling each church to come back under his blessing. And here, let me say again, Lakewood, Jesus deeply loves Lakewood Evangelical Free Church. If he has words of correction for us, it's not because he's abusive. It's not because he's cruel. It's not because he has given up on us. If the Lord has hard words to say to us, it's not because he's putting us down. It's because he wants to lift us up. So listen carefully for the voice of the Spirit as the Lord speaks to the churches. So the text Mark read for us this first message is the word of the exalted Savior to his church in Ephesus. And of all the churches that we're going to read about in Revelation 2 and 3, we know most about this church in Ephesus. It's the city where the Apostle Paul planted the church in Acts 19. It was the capital city of the region and also the center of the pagan worship of Diana, also called Artemis, do you remember this story in Acts 19? She's the moon goddess 
They believe that she protected hunters and that she protected pregnant women and looked after women in childbirth. They worship this false goddess. And the temple to Diana in Ephesus was so grand that it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Ephesus church began in an evangelistic crusade when Apollos, a powerful preacher, began to preach the gospel. Apollos was a powerful preacher, and he knew Jesus and loved Jesus. He was missing an important couple pieces of doctrine, and he got help on that as he was instructed by a husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila. You remember them from Scripture. But Apollos' preaching was powerful with a number of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So that when Paul arrived a few months later in Ephesus, he found there a number of believers. And was, as was Paul's pattern, he went to preach in the synagogue to tell the Jews there about believers. And many Jews became believers in Christ. And when that caused a struggle in the synagogue, they decided they would rent a hall because their group was growing dramatically, such a large growing church across a very short period of time. And when they came away from the synagogue, many of the temple officials, many of the priests in the worship of Diana, many of the idol statue manufacturers became believers. So many that it threatened the business structure and the tourism of Ephesus it affected the, uh, the, the business of the temple of Diana and it caused an actual riot in the streets. But you've got to know that this church has this powerful beginning and explosive growth so much so that across the two years that Paul pastored there, it radically changed that city. So many of the occultists, so many of the sorcerers who led the pagan worship came to Christ. So many of the silver idol makers who made trinkets and statues for the temple, so many of them received Jesus. So many that in the early days of the church, it radically transformed the social structure of the city. And not only the idolaters, but also many slaves came to faith in Christ. This was just an amazing work of God, perhaps the largest revival Paul ever saw in his ministry. Probably several thousand were new believers, and this revival impacts the whole region. Probably out of that revival, the six other churches are formed. Well, that was 30 years earlier, and across time, much has changed in the church in Ephesus. Just imagine what it would have been like to see such a powerful move of God in your town, one that started your church and other churches. They had memories of wonderful days, miracle works of God, the great preaching of perhaps the greatest evangelist of their age, 
So many were rescued from evil and the deception of false religion. So many were brought into the family of God. What amazing memories they have. But that was years ago when there was joy and excitement and fresh love for the Lord that was palpable in their midst. What's going on now? And what does Jesus have to say to the church now? Well, let's walk step by step through this text. First, the salutation. John, write this to the angelos, the messengers of the church there in Ephesus. Now remember, John has been recent pastor of this church here in Ephesus. But these are, the text says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the golden lampstands. Who's that? Well, we saw him last week in chapter one. This is the exalted, eternal, majestic Lord and Savior, Jesus. This is his words to his church. And what is he saying? Well, here are some encouraging, commendable compliments. I know your work, your toil, and your patient endurance. By the way, the Greek word for that is hupomeno. It's one of my favorite words in the Greek. It's a great word. It means you're hanging in there, hanging on, hanging tough, as we used to say. And I know how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is a faithful church, hanging in there, spotting evil when they see it, calling it out, also spotting phonies. There always were false teachers that the early church had to deal with, some claiming to be apostles but weren't. There were some weird twists on the faith in those early days, but Ephesus resisted those, and Jesus is complimenting this church. You're working for me with patience and hanging in there through tough times, and you don't grow weary, and you know the truth, and you stand for truth. This letter now is a little unique from the other letters in that it doesn't contain that same section of critical challenges that we'll see in the rest of the letters, but it does move right on to constructive criticisms. Jesus is not stalling to get to the heart of his message. And we're going to notice in every one of these letters there's an exhortation, a rebuke of sorts. I have this against you, Jesus said. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And the Greek structure here is just powerful in the original language. We read it Englishified, don't we? But you see, the Greek word order makes this particular point with the verb at the end of the sentence and everything else up front. It's such a powerful sentence. In the original, it goes like this. Your Love, at the beginning, first you had, you left behind. You left behind. You left behind the love. What does that mean? 
what's bothering Jesus about the church in Ephesus? How could it be that they would leave their love behind? How did it get lost? And what replaced it? You know, it happens sometimes, even in serving the Lord, that you kind of lose what you're doing it for. Sometimes in serving the Lord, it becomes about duty and obligation and somebody's got to, and they're really counting on me. I got to tell you that one of the real challenges of being a pastor is that you can get so busy doing the deal that you can forget your love for the Lord. Going to meetings, board meetings and staff meetings and denominational meetings and planning meetings and meetings before the meetings and meetings after the meetings. Uh, add to that counseling people and studying the scripture and preparing to preach and then teaching and encouraging. You can get so busy doing and doing and doing that you lose what you're doing it for. You can get your schedule so full of serving Jesus that you don't have any time to love Jesus. And that can happen in any kind of work. I know a politician who got into politics because he wanted to help people, but he got so enamored with argumentation and debate and influence and power that he's become a nasty, horrible person. He wanted to help people, but these days he doesn't give people a thought. And listen, it's, special, it's, a, it's possible, especially for a church like Ephesus that loves truth, a church that spots phonies, a church that can't stand evil, it's very possible for a church like that to become rigid and brittle, truth-telling and evil-bashing without any love for those Jesus wants to reach and without any experience of passion for Jesus himself. And usually they can't even spot it because they're so busy contending for the truth and fighting for the right and rejecting anyone who doesn't measure up or know their Bible good enough or believe well enough. That's why when Paul wrote to this same church in Ephesus 4.15, he told them that they need to speak the truth in love. And it appears that this church in Ephesus has become all truth and no love. All truth and no love. Apparently this was showing up even in their early years. They spoke the truth and let the chips fall where they may. So what does the Lord say to them? Remember from where you've fallen. Remember what it felt like to be so in love with Jesus. And remember when your reactions to people were marked by compassion and care. And when your words to people were to love them and, and bless them and encourage them and help them, remember, because that was the sweet time. 
Remember and look at the next word. Look at the next word. Repent. Repent is the word metanoia. It means turn around. Turn around. It's not too late. You can turn back into the blessing of God. But turn around. Listen, I don't think it's ever too late. As long as you have breath and life, it's never too late to repent and turn around and draw up close to the Lord who loves you. Nobody's a lost cause. Nobody's a lost cause as long as you have life and breath. I don't think we know much about repentance as Christians. Repent? Oh, that's what I did when I became a Christian, and I never need to do that again. Hope I never need to do that again. But listen, for the growing Christian, repentance is a lifestyle. Repeatedly confessing our wrongs. Always turning to walk with Jesus. It's constantly saying no to my selfishness and yes to the Lord. Constantly turning around from where I would be going to walk where Jesus knows I should be going. A lifestyle of repentance. Constantly turning around from what I'm tempted to do and say and be and turning into the power of the Holy Spirit to do and say and be what he wants me. To be. And listen to me. It's possible that the Lord right now is saying to you, there's something going on in your life. Something you're holding on to in your attitudes. There's something you failed to say in love to someone you've been in conflict with. Correct that relationship. Last Sunday we had communion and we planned and took some extra time for self-evaluation. I've had several of you come and thank me for planning it that way and say, wow, the Lord put his finger on some stuff in my life. Have you done this week what the Lord has asked you to do? And perhaps the Spirit of God in this moment is saying to you, repent. Turn around. Admit the wrong attitude. Admit that thing you're doing. Admit the mistake you've been making. Admit it. Decide to turn around to what God wants and ask Him to help you. He'd love to help you. He'd love to lead you. He'd love to restore you. Friends, I'm learning that I have to make repentance a part of my everyday thinking. And you should too. Because you and I have a long way to go to become all that Jesus is calling us to become. 
So church in Ephesus, remember and repent and return. Repent and love me like you did at first. Repent and start loving one another like you did in the golden days. Turn that around. If not, and here's the warning in this crucial counsel, if you won't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand. I'm not going to forever let you claim to be a church when you don't act like a church. You don't have forever to claim to be the family of God and treat each other no better than the world treats people. I can come and remove your lampstand and stop using you as a light. Your church will be no more. I want you to repent. I love you and I want the best for you. I want those sweet days back when you felt God loving you just for the honor of being together with each other and when love flowed in your fellowship and when love flowed from the heart of God into you and back to him and through you to each other and through you to the lost world. I want that again for you. If you've got ears, then listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches, is what the text says. And to those who conquer, to those who get this right, I will grant you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember Genesis? Story of Adam and Eve? They were banished from paradise when they sinned to keep them from eating from the tree of life. Yes, eternal life. But it speaks even more about fellowship and closeness with God. And those who remember and repent and return, I'll welcome you back into this dynamic, eternal, joyful, loving fellowship with the Father. What, what had happened at Ephesus? Maybe you know that this is a common struggle for churches that move into the second and third generation of believers. The church was launched with passion 40 years ago, but now it's the children and the grandchildren of those who had such passion for the Lord, those who had such excitement and joy watching God work. Actually, those who study church growth and church dynamics tell us that this is really common. It's more than common. It's typical that churches typically reach the peak of their growth from 35 to 40 years after they are born. It's nearly a predictable bell curve. The passion and enthusiasm for the Lord and his work peaks and the typical church heads into a long decline. Simon Kistemaker, in his commentary on Revelation, 
suggests that the Ephesian church makeup had changed and their fellowship had changed as the second and third generation Christians took over. Not the first generation anymore, those who spread the gospel and helped people find Jesus, but the second and third generation who became caretakers and custodians. They became defensive rather than offensive. They shelter in place rather than win people to Jesus. They protect what they've got rather than risk for the Lord. Not many churches stay vital past 40 years. They can. What it takes is a revival in their passion of, uh, of love for the Lord. What it takes is a recalibration of their ministries to start another move up that graph. Paul Harvey once said about the church, too many Christians are no longer fishers of men, but they become keepers of the aquarium. That's not what the Lord wants for us. Lakewood was born in 1965. When did we reach our peak? 2002 was our strongest year, the year of our greatest growth and outreach when Lakewood was 37 years old. Could we remember and repent and return? Some of you remember the excitement and passion of those early days. What a joy it was to serve the Lord and love him together. The intervening years have not been so fun. What do we have to do to turn it around? And that's where we're going to be studying and praying and asking the Lord and learning in these next weeks. The Lord has led us to a process and led us to a transition team that we believe can lead to a wonderful turnaround of the decline that has marked recent years. Wouldn't you love to see that? I know Jesus would. Listen to me. There's nothing the Lord Jesus wants more than to see our ministry restored and revived and a new season of effectiveness for his glory. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing that will thrill your soul and grab your heart like being fully committed and available to Jesus and being in a church where there's new life born of the Spirit of God. Remember, repent, return.
Well, basically, there are three families of us that moved to Brainerd, and um, was it Christiansons, Hansons, and the Gilbertsons, and we tried different churches, but nothing really seemed to fit us that well, being from preacher background, and so we decided maybe we should have some Bible studies and meet together at home once a week and see what would develop out of that. Lincoln Evangelical Free Church and uh, had loaned us their pastor, and uh, he came over on the Wednesday Bible study nights, and we grew from there. We had uh, went from just a six of us to uh, eight to 10 to 15, 20. And uh, we decided to look at maybe starting a church, maybe out in the Baxter area. There wasn't a single church out here. Just, uh, we just felt this is probably the area that God would lead us to begin a church. And from there, it worked out quite well. Well, I think everybody had a job to do, and there was people that came that had a particular gift, and we just worked together and uh, tried to make the best of it, and it worked out quite well. We had a fellow that came along with us, that, by the name of Clyde Getters. He was quite a fellow. He could invent and do almost anything. And he really got the ball rolling out here with his equipment, and got the trees pushed down, and everything dug up, ready to build a building. As we were building it, uh, first of all, we needed finances to get the thing started with. And so uh, we were tied up with a man by the name of Mr. Crook. And he got us started with a plan of selling $1,000 life insurance policy with the church being the beneficiary. And it worked out quite well. Uh, so we were able to get a Money started to get going with the church. I think we'd like to see this area evangelized and uh, brought to the Lord. There's a lot of room for for churches out here. There's enough here already. But anyway, I think to see people come to know the Word and to know His will for our lives and to see God at work. And um, we just praise Him for it. He's, he's the one behind it all. Thank you. I ran across this text in Romans 15, and I'd read it before, but it had particular power this week. And now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of hope fill you with all joy in peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday.